1: banking services provided by green dot bank member fdic only funds and envelopes earn apy apy can change at any time
2: this
3: is bloomberg law with june grasso from bloomberg radio
1: look i screwed up
2: like i was ceo i had a responsibility here i had a responsibility to be on top of what was going on on the exchange i wish i had done much better at that
4: Sam Bankman-Fried accepted responsibility for FTX's collapse in his so-called apology tour in November of 2022. But when he took the stand at his fraud trial, he danced around his answers and appeared vague and evasive in a painstaking cross-examination. So much so that his own lawyer says Bankman-Fried was the worst witness he's ever seen. Joining me is Bloomberg legal reporter Ava Benny Morrison, who spoke to attorney David Mills, the -the behind-the-scenes architect of Bankman-Fried's defense at trial.
2: Ava, tell us about David Mills. Who is he? David Mills is a Stanford law professor, a longtime white collar lawyer, who is also best friends with Sam Bankman-Fried's parents, Barbara and Joe. They're also Stanford law professors. And he came into SBF's case to be the legal strategist. So he was sort of directing the approach that trial attorneys should take, suggesting different strategies in terms of dealing with the charges, uh, the defense, the kind of case that they would make at the trial.
4: Law isn't his only career. He has quite an expansive resume.
2: That's right. He's a very interesting guy, and he has done a lot of different roles and cases throughout his career. On top of being an attorney, he's also a managing director at Fortress. He's also a general counsel at a quite reputable Silicon Valley design firm run by the very well-known former chief designer at Apple, Johnny Ives. He's also been an advisor to the VC firm Benchmark when it was trying to out the Uber CEO, Travis Kalanick, a few years ago. So he has his fingers in a lot of different pies, but he is relatively unknown. Most people outside of the industry don't really know who he is. People that I spoke to for this story said he's very humble. He likes to keep his head down and just do the work. He doesn't really seek the limelight at all.
4: He's also been involved in a lot of pro bono efforts for criminal defendants. And when you interviewed him, he had a cap on with the number 3419, representing the number of people he's helped to get out of prison.
2: Exactly. This is something he's probably most proud of. He was a major financial backer. And driver of the effort to overturn California's three strikes law. That was a law that put um, people in prison for life on their third conviction no matter how big or small that third conviction was. So he worked with students at Stanford Law uh, in 2012 to change that law which ended up getting thousands of people released from prison.
4: He told you that he realized right away that it would be an uphill battle defending Bankman Freed because
2: lawyers turned him down. Exactly. He'd had a bit of an idea about FTX from Joe, Stan Bankman Freed's father. They had some informal conversations about how the crypto exchange was going, uh, Joe thinking about going over and working for FTX full time. But when there was a run on the bank at FTX, in November 2022, Joe called David essentially for advice, and David's response was Sam needs a lawyer right away. So David started calling around different firms, looking for someone to try and represent Sam Bagman Fried, but he said a lot of people didn't want to touch the case. He described Sam as the most hated person in America behind Donald Trump. He finally settled on two trial attorneys in New York, Mark Cohen and Christian Everdell, who ended up taking the case right through trial.
4: And what was his role in the trial? Because he he didn't appear before the judge.
2: That's right. He was there for most of the trial, but he took a bit of a behind the scenes role. He described himself as the legal strategist. So he was doing a lot of the strategizing with the trial attorneys about Sam Bankman Freed's defense, what arguments they should make, how they should deal with some of the charges that were filed against Sam bankman Freed after he was extradited back from the Bahamas late last year. Some of those charges ended up actually being severed and kicked down the road for a potentially second trial uh, next year. So he was sort of the key architect behind that strategy. He told you that
4: he doesn't believe the trial was fair.
2: That's right. He said he believed that Sam is innocent because he didn't the intent to do anything wrong, which is obviously a key element of proving fraud. He said that the pre-trial motions, so the orders that the judge handed down before the trial even got started, really put the defence at a disadvantage. They weren't allowed to haul a number of expert witnesses. They couldn't really rely on the defence that Sam was acting on the advice of lawyers and doing a lot of the things that the prosecution said was wrong. He said, From that point on, he realized the case was essentially unwinnable.
4: And you and I have discussed Sam Beckman-Fried's decision to take the witness, stand. He said that after the prosecution's case, SBF really had no choice but to testify.
2: Exactly. He said after those pretrial motions and hearing the damning testimony from some of Sam Beckman-Fried's former friends and fellow executives, that Sam really had no other choice but to testify himself. Mill said it was his idea and his strategy for Sam to get up there and say, yes, I did everything that you said I did. And I made all of these statements that, yes, they were conflicting after FTX filed for bankruptcy last year, but I was doing my best to look after customers and I was trying to save their money. But he didn't do that. He seemed to be okay and coherent and clear on direct examination. But when he was under cross-examination, he came across as a little bit evasive. He was quibbling with the prosecutor's questioning. It seemed like he you know, wouldn't answer sort of simple questions about whether he said something or he didn't. And Mills was pretty candid in his assessment of Sam under cross-examination, saying he was probably the worst witness he's ever seen under cross.
4: I assume they prepped him, but did he talk about how they prepped him at all?
2: I asked that question. I said, well, isn't that your job uh, to <laughs> prep Sam uh, ahead of his trial for this very situation? He said that while there was a lot of preparation done for his direct examination, it was really difficult to prepare him adequately because he was in prison. His bail was revoked just before trial. There were a lot of issues around his lawyers and getting proper access to him. Mill also said that if he had all of the resources and money in the world, he would have hired a different lawyer who wasn't involved in the case to go through a mock cross examination with Sam, but they didn't do that. So he put it down to the lack of access to Sam in prison and the lack of money, essentially.
4: He told you that Bankman Freed went off script when he took the stand. What did he mean by that?
2: Mill said that it was his strategy and he wanted Sam to get up there and admit to everything that the prosecution and the witnesses said that he did. They wanted him to just admit to all of the public statements, the tweets and the media interviews and all of those different things that were on the public record in the context of, yes, I said these things, but I was trying my best in really difficult circumstances to do the best for customers. But he didn't do that. Instead, Sam got up there and said time and time again, he couldn't recall things that the prosecution said that he had said, that he couldn't recall certain conversations with witnesses, so there was a disconnect there between what Mills wanted him to do and what his strategy was and what Sam did.
4: What's astonishing is that Mills thinks that even if Sam Bankman-Fried had performed better on the stand, a guilty verdict was inevitable.
2: Yes, Mills said that he thought a guilty verdict was inevitable but the trial wasn't fair. This circles back to Mills referring to the pretrial motions that essentially whittled down the defence case to a case that was very thin. He also thought that the testimony from Sam bateman Freed's former friends, Gary Wong, Caroline Ellison and the Shad Singh, were pretty powerful and it was difficult to go up against those.
4: Did he come to the trial every day?
2: Mills wasn't there every day, but I would say he was there for about 80% of the time. And he would sit in a row that was reserved for Sam Bateman Freed's family. family. During the breaks, he was often talking to Sam's parents, Barbara and Joe. Sometimes he would go up and confer with the trial attorneys as well, just at the table.
4: Mills wasn't there for the jury verdict. He said he'd had enough. When did he leave?
2: Towards the end, uh, Mills left. It was probably during the closing statements that the prosecution and the defense were making. And Mills wasn't there when the jury handed down his verdict.
4: Why he got involved in this is that he was close friends with Sam Beckman-Fried's parents. Did something happen that has caused a breach
2: in that relationship? Yes. Mills thinks that this case and the verdict against Sam Beckman-Fried has certainly had an impact on his friendship with Barbara and Joe, Mill said that he took on this case out of a favour to Sam Bankman's Street's parents, as well as an interest in being involved in a really novel and high-profile case. Mill said that he was concerned that parents who think that their child hasn't done anything wrong will look for someone to blame and that he was in their line of sight. He also said that he didn't think their friendship would recover. We actually went to Barbara and Joe and asked them, what they thought of Mills and his comments. They responded and said, we love David Mills and we're eternally grateful for everything that he has done for us.
4: This really struck me. He said, I'm not going to get myself emotionally involved on a very deep personal level in a case like this again. And he's rethinking his future in criminal law.
2: Exactly. He seems like someone who throws absolutely everything into a case once he signs on to it. You know, he told us he often talks to his wife to almost get her permission and her support to take on a client because he just gives his entire life to it. So that's what he did in this case. And I think it had the added complexity of a friendship there. And he found the whole experience very demanding, very exhausting, and he just doesn't want to do another criminal law case like it again.
4: So he's not going to be involved in the appeal then? That's
2: what he said. He doesn't want to be involved in the appeal. Uh, he feels like he's he's done his bit and he's ready to just take it down a few notches and spend a bit more time with his family. Do we know about
4: Sam Bankman-Fried's appeal, when it will be filed?
2: We don't. We don't even know if they are definitely going to appeal. They have not filed a notice to appeal. We understand that they've been seeking advice from different appellate lawyers, but it's not clear yet whether they'll definitely go ahead with this. If they do, it would likely be after sentencing.
4: I can't imagine that they wouldn't appeal this. They certainly have enough issues. And when is Bankman-Fried going to be sentenced?
2: Sam Bankman-Fried is scheduled to be sentenced in late March. He's facing decades in prison. I don't want to say 110 years, like that's collectively, but he's never going to face that.
4: Such an interesting interview, Ava. Thanks so much. That's Bloomberg Legal Reporter, Ava Benny Morrison.
1: You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder.
0: Epic Games, the maker of Fortnite, won an epic court battle
4: against Google on Monday when a jury decided that the search engine giant wields illegal monopoly power through its Android app store. Epic sued Google and Apple in 2020, accusing the tech titans of abusing control of their respective shops selling apps and other digital content on mobile devices. Google and Apple take percentages of all financial transactions at their app stores leading to complaints by developers about an unfair tax imposed by the companies. Joining me is antitrust expert Harry First, a professor at NYU Law School. What did the jury decide exactly here?
3: So the jury decided um, basically that in a number of different ways, Google abused its power to keep its monopoly in the Google app stores or the distribution of Google apps and that they did it a number of different ways agreements with the handset makers agreements with developers you know making sure that uh, Google Play appears on every Android phone keeping developers from going off and developing their own app stores and basically requiring everyone to sort of go through this funnel you know it's sort of like the old hourglasses, you know, it goes down into the middle. And everything goes through Google Play if you want to reach it. someone with an Android phone in their hand. So those little grains of sand, 30% of them go into Google's pocket.
4: The jury deliberated for a little over three hours after a right. month-long trial and came back with the anonymous verdict. Was the evidence against Google that strong?
3: Well, I wasn't there, (laughs) and I sort of said that as a joke, but actually outside observers, unless they sit there through the whole trial, don't really get the same sense of the case that the jurors do, and jurors take these cases very seriously, and sometimes it may be surprising to people get a little cynical about things, but particularly in federal courts, at least what I've observed and what others have said, jurors pay attention They sit there, and they listen hard. This is new to them in a sense. Uh, I mean, maybe some of them have played video games on their phones, and certainly all of them have phones, but they listen hard. And I took a look at the sheet with their findings, and the jury foreman, I assume it was, wrote in. It said you're supposed to define what the market is. And instead of the sheet having a list of things with a checkbox, you know, what it mm-hmm. might be, it just had a box and you had to write it in. So they wrote in the exact right product market definition that the plaintiffs wanted. And it's sort of, to me, now maybe I'm exaggerating, so sort of a little tell that they're paying attention. You know, I mean, this is a little bit technical language and they were paying attention to what was going on. There were atmospherics in the case, of course, there always are, you know, testimony of how apparently Google made an offer to Epic to come back on board, we'll give you a lot of money. There, you know, was some question about how Google was dealing with its internal chats and, you know, whether they were trying to, you know, erase the evidence as as they were making Mm -hmm. it. So those may have played a role, but I think that's a real indication of, non technical experts saying, okay, we understand what power is, you know, what a monopoly is. We're not economists, but we can understand this evidence. And Google's it.
4: I mean what was Google's defense to all this?
3: It's sort of a lot of defenses. The basic defense is we give you a great product, the whole Android ecosystem that we've constructed and Google Play is only part of it. Is this is all designed to enable handset makers to offer you alternatives to Apple. So Android phones are the competitor to Apple, and we compete. And Google Play is part of that competition. And, you know, we compete against Apple and Apple's App Store. So if our consumers aren't having good experiences, they feel, you know, the apps aren't good or whatever it is, they may decide the next time they change their phones, it's going to be uh, an Apple and an iPhone. So we're under competition. We ain't no
4: monopoly. Epic, which brought this case, it seems to be on a mission, lost a similar challenge to Apple's App Store two years ago. And both right. companies have asked the Supreme Court to review that. Right. Does the judge's verdict there contradict the jury's verdict here, or are the cases and the facts different?
3: Um, yes, maybe, or maybe yes. Depends <laughs> <on>. <laughs> so You're doing it again, um, Harry. You got me in one of those. <laughs> I mean, this actually is, certainly is going to be one of Google's arguments when Google appeals this case to the Court of Appeals in the Ninth Circuit, saying, you know, you just affirm this decision, finding a very different statement of what the product market is, finding that Apple and Google compete, in the distribution of gaming apps, and you were right in the Apple case, and this case can't stand. The jury made an error of law, you know, reflected no doubt in the instructions that it was given, and the verdict can't stand. So I think that's gonna be a key part. Now, what did I say, maybe, yes, yes, maybe? I forget. Google is gonna be right. Epic is still arguing, of course, that the judge was wrong in the Apple case, but, putting that to the side, we'll argue there's differences between what Google's doing and what Apple's doing. And the product market definition is different because other companies actually do distribute Android-compatible applications. So the product market is not Google applications. It's Android-compatible applications. So Samsung has a not very successful, I gather, App Store, it's not a product market definition constructed for one seller, as it seemed for Apple, since no one else can distribute applications that will work with the Apple operating system, because Apple controls that. But Google doesn't quite control Android in the same way, although there are probably arguments over that. So they'll try to distinguish the facts of the case a little bit, but at heart, it seems like a problem. Now, It's the same problem that the Justice Department faces in some sense in the search case because you're still talking about that Android system and talking about distribution agreements, the very same distribution agreements about which Epic is complaining in this case, the Justice Department is complaining in the search case, distribution agreements that tie in the handset makers who don't have any choice, really. The Android system is the only operating system, really, that they can use for their phones.
4: The case isn't over because the judge has to decide what the remedy will be yet. Epic didn't seek monetary damages from Google, only a change in app store policies. I mean, what's the range that the judge can order here?
3: Well, um, you're being more specific about what Epic's... Seeking than Epic was <laughs> in its complaint. The remedy was stated very generally about adjunctive relief. So it's not 100% clear what Epic wants, except to say that apparently whatever Match was offered, Match.com was offered and agreed to in its settlement, presumably Google would have been glad for Epic to take the same settlement. It didn't. So presumably it wants more than just that. Now, I'm not 100% clear about exactly what it wants, except it certainly wants to be able to free itself from the Google payment system. It wants to be able to sell things in Fortnite through its own Fortnite app and not have to pay a commission to Google. But exactly you know, how they want to achieve that, technically, they don't seem to want to have some sort of a choice thing that's within Google's control. So it's not 100% clear. But I would say this, Epic did not invest so much money in this litigation without thinking that it could get something worth more. So whatever it wants, they must think it will be worth a lot of money to them, you know, going forward because Fortnite's a big business.
4: Coming up. Is the $300 billion app store industry really in danger? I'm June Grosso and you're listening to
1: Bloomberg. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder.
4: Epic Games won a major court battle against Google when a jury decided that the search engine giant wields illegal monopoly power through its Android app store. I've been talking to Professor Harry First of NYU Law School. Some analysts have been saying that the business model in apps that generates for Google and Apple close to $200 billion a year is in jeopardy. Tim Sweeney, the chief executive officer of Epic, said, the dominoes are going to start falling here. The end of 30% is in sight, 30% being they charge commissions of as much as 30% to software developers. Do you think it's as big as all that?
3: Well, maybe. I mean, it's certainly Epic wants to argue that your business is about to end, you know, this may just be a dance towards a settlement, hard to say, but you know, whatever it is, at least for the big players, I mean, Apple and Google have already moderated some of their pricing for smaller developers, but the big money appears to be, particularly with the games, which offer things, subscriptions and things that can be bought within the app itself. And there's a lot of money in that. So no doubt that 30% isn't going to stick. But what it's going to be and who's going to control the payment, I don't know. Apparently the judge thought that he could push the parties to a settlement to come up with some number. You know, And part of the question is, is this a settlement that's only sort of a one-off for them? Or you know, is it going to help other developers? And I guess that's yet to be seen.
4: So you refer to this, but... Does the verdict here sort of underscore a sentiment among consumers that major tech companies have gained too much power?
3: Well, in a way, yes, I think so. But I would put it this way. I think that consumers seeing what they do and, you know, the steps they take to fend off competition and fend off the ability of other firms to offer consumers different products, And then the prices they charge, I think it's not just consumers saying, oh, my God, these are really big companies by darn. These are people saying, we're seeing some of the evidence. And you know what? All those critics who've been saying this, they've got a point. And, you know, hard to see that they should be making so much money off of things they don't develop, you know, just because it has to go through their little fingers. So I think consumers are saying the facts.
4: Google is going to appeal. Do you think that it will be a difficult appeal because of the sweeping verdict?
3: Well, it's a different kind of appeal because they, they don't have an opinion from the judge to sort of balance off of and to focus on. And, you know, once a jury finds something as a fact, it's hard to go around that. On the other hand, what they're going to argue is straight issues of law. And, you know, they have jury instructions that the judge submitted, so they have something written they can say, look, this was wrong. The jury may have found that under what they were told to look for, that's a market, and Google is a monopolist, but that was the wrong definition of market.
4: It almost seems like an antitrust revolution for Google. I mean, they have this case. They have the landmark antitrust case you mentioned in D.C. The Justice Department has been investigating Apple's App Store practices since 2019. Is it an antitrust revolution, looking at it from the viewpoint of a professor of antitrust?
3: Well, from professor of antitrust, I think, gee what took everyone so long to (laughs) catch up to this? You know, if you think about using antitrust against major economic powerhouses, and particularly in the tech space, it, it took two decades between Microsoft and filing cases against the major tech platforms. So in that sense, it is the revolution not taking place in the streets. It's taking place in courtrooms. So it's pretty amazing in that sense. And I would add in one other case to this, which is the ad tech case against Google that the Justice Department has filed. And the reason why I just mentioned that is that will also be tried before a jury because the Justice Department is asking for money damages because the federal government is an advertiser. So it's a way both to get money back for taxpayers, but also a way to have a case tried before a jury instead of a judge. And this may be a little cautionary tale for Google about that case.
4: Yeah, do you think that the Justice Department, because they haven't fared well in front of some of the judges, that they want a jury, or just they would generally want a jury anyway?
3: Well, to put it in context, the Justice Department has had the authority to seek treble damages since 1990 and single damages since 1955 I don't think they filed a dozen cases at all that time. And recent cases that they had filed really were sort of odd cases. So they've almost never used this. I think the culture has not been to, you know, be suing for damages. And I'm not sure why they chose this strategy, but it may be because they did want to get out from just, you know, having to present their case before a judge whose, you know, judges are conservative. Uh, That's what they are. (laughs) And this gives them a chance to tell the story to, you know, 12 citizens. Very
4: powerful. I always enjoy our conversations, Harry. Thanks so much for coming on the show. That's Professor Harry First of NYU Law School. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show.